This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. The disease has moved out of Africa. It's now into the Middle East, and so it's only a matter of time before it arrives. So we're trying to develop resistant varieties and just have them out there. So when this fungus does arrive, it won't, uh, as I say, clean our clock. Brewing is a continuation of the malting process, which is dependent on the life cycle of the barley plant. If you want to really understand brewing, you've got to understand malting. But also realize that the entire malting industry relies on the efforts of a handful of people like Pat. This episode originally aired in April of 2018. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. Hi, my name is uh, Pat Hayes. I'm with Oregon State University, and uh, I work with the Oregon Barley Project. Pat, most barley varieties are pure lines, meaning they'll be the same next year and indefinitely. Explain that to listeners. Yeah, so a barley flower uh, has uh, both male and female reproductive organs, and so it is going to self-pollinate. And that means that with every uh, cycle of self-pollination that you reduce the percentage of heterozygosity by 50%. So let me give you a concrete example. We cross uh, Golden Promise by full pint and that first generation, which would be the F1 or the hybrid generation, that one will be 100% heterozygous at every locus where uh, Golden Promise and full pint differ. Barley breeding is a public endeavor in North America. You, for example, work for Oregon State University, but breeding is privatized in the rest of the world. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, I think, for uh, the fact that uh, we still see public sector engagement in plant breeding in the United States uh, with barley and wheat, most notably. And uh, you see private sector uh, engagement elsewhere. It's really uh, sort of an evolutionary kind of a process. If you look at 
Europe where there is uh, almost exclusively private sector barley. That system really kind of kicked in after the Second World War where you had research institutes dedicating themselves to kind of pure science and then you had uh, the private sector as the developer and and, uh, the outlet for products. Here in the U.S., we saw a similar trend uh, with hybrid crops. And so if you take corn, for example, uh, there very little public sector involvement in developing hybrid corn varieties. That's almost exclusively private sector. Soybeans are self-pollinated, and we saw them go from the public to the private sector. And in the U.S. now, there's actually uh, increasing engagement of the private sector in barley. Uh, For example, uh, domestically, AB InBev uh, and Coors have their own breeding programs. And then we're seeing an increasing presence of barley varieties from European companies such as uh, Ackerman and uh, Lima Grain cereal seeds. Uh, So we may be at sort of a kind of a tipping point, if you will, in the U.S., uh, where we still have very viable, active public programs, but we also have uh, very effective private sector programs. So far, there's excellent collaboration between all of those in the U.S. Is there an advantage one way or another? Does barley breeding suffer in the U.S. without a bunch of private funds behind your efforts? Well, you know, obviously we'd probably, you know, I could say blithely that we would do better if we had more funding. And uh, at this point in time, we do have Uh, significant private sector support for our program via the American Malt Barley Association, for example, uh, Great Western Malting, Mecca Great Estate Malting. So different private entities put money into our research program. And so, you know, down the road, 10, 20 years from now, the question would be, are those entities still going to be supporting a private sector program or will there be new relationships that are established uh, between, say, malting and brewing companies in the private sector? That just kind of remains to be seen. Probably every brewer understands that barley breeding is a 10 to 15 year process, but I bet most of them couldn't tell you why that is. Walk us through all the steps along that path to commercial acceptance. Right. So uh, it is definitely uh, a situation where you have to take the long view. Uh, Let's harken back to that uh, example that we had at the outset here of crossing uh, Golden Promise by full pint, for example. And so I said, hey, we got this F1 generation. It's 100% heterozygosity. That would be F1 hybrid seed. And so if we were in the corn business or the hybrid tomato business, that's what would be marketed. And uh, barley does show some hybrid vigor, otherwise known as heterosis at the F1 generation. But uh, for a number of reasons, uh, F1 hybrids uh, don't really fit the the malting barley picture at this point. And so uh, what you have to do is go through various cycles of self-pollination until you're at, say, the F7, that would be seven or eight generations after the making the initial cross before you are sufficiently homozygous or sufficiently pure, if you will, where you can start to have confidence in the uh, performance of potential varieties at uh, both the agronomic and the malting quality level. There's a couple of ways to kind of speed that up a little bit so you can uh, engage in uh, off-season nurseries, they're called. So, for example, I might have my F1 in Oregon and do my uh, F2 generation in Chile and then bring that back to uh, Oregon for the F3 generation. And thus, I can compress the breeding cycles 
I can also compress the breeding cycles through what's called doubled haploid breeding, and we may go into that in a little more detail. Uh, but it's just a, it's a way of going from the F1 generation to complete homozygosity in, in one leap. But once you're at that completely homozygous stage, uh, you've really only begun the process of thorough vetting of the potential variety for its agronomic and malting quality characters. The American Malt Barley Association, Malting Barley Association, I should say, uh, has, uh, for example, a very defined series of steps uh, that a variety goes through before it gets to final approval. And that is a multi-year process that's designed to give farmers, maltsters, and brewers confidence that the selection is indeed going to perform as expected. Could you get into a little bit more detail about crossing? You know, what is on a practical level, what does that actually look like for you? How does that process work? Look like is uh, definitely a good way to put it. Uh, With deteriorating eyesight, uh, then increasing magnification becomes necessary. Uh, So if I look (laughs) into uh, a barley florid, I need, uh, you know, like at least two X's at this point of reading glasses to see what's happening down in there. So if you imagine a barley spike, uh, or head as we'd call it, then each of the uh, flowers is a what's called a florid. And what you need to do is you need to emasculate that uh, each of those florets in order to turn it into a female. Because as we you know, discussed at the outset, the, the barley flower is, is, is what's called a perfect flower. And so it has male and female reproductive organs. So you take a pair of scissors and you cut across that, that floret, which is about the size of a pencil eraser, more or less. So you cut across that thing and then you need to go in with a pair of tweezers and pull out the male reproductive organs, which are called the anthers. And there's three of them in there. And each of those uh, anthers is about the size of, you know, half of a chopstick in width and maybe, you know, one knuckle, uh, half a knuckle in terms of, uh, of length. And you need to pull those things out completely because each anther within it has thousands, tens of thousands of pollen grains. And so you need to get everything out of there at the right point in time. You then leave that florid for about uh, three days until the stigma, which is the female piece of the anatomy there, uh, becomes receptive. And then you bring in the pollen from uh, the male donor. What are the most challenging parts of the whole breeding process for the breeder? I would say that it's having to throw away things. And, and that's what plant breeding is just uh, sort of about being ruthless, that you've, you've gone to all the work to create these F2s or F3 segregating generation material or these double haploids, but you can't keep them all. And so you need to just be ruthless in your selection process. And even when you have a potential selection out there that is really outstanding for one attribute or another, then you still can't keep it. It's got to be outstanding for all attributes. Yep. You've you've probably thrown away the next greatest barley variety hundreds of times, right? (laughs) Maybe thousands of times, maybe millions of times. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's kind of what, uh, you know, that you're just always in the back of your mind. And then you want to say, well, let's uh, sort of keep... uh, One of these things around, uh, my wife just dropped by and uh, she's headed off here. 
uh, to a class and just made a little note to me on a pad of paper that says it's a numbers game. And that's something that, uh, that you know, is drilled into us as uh, plant breeders and training that the more numbers you have out there, the more likely you are to get the final combination of, of things that you want. So we try all sorts of tricks to maximize the odds of picking that winning variety, and that's sort of where contemporary genetic tools come in. That's great. Well, that's the, I wanted to talk about some of those tricks, and I'm sure you field a lot of questions about genetic tools. Before we get into topics like GMOs and CRISPR, uh, talk about how DNA fingerprinting helps your cause and to what extent you're able to utilize that tool. Right. So DNA fingerprinting is kind of like the 23andMe of, of plants. Uh, in the case of barley, it would be seven in, in me, if you will, uh, because you have seven pairs of chromosomes out there. So we're fortunate now to have uh, heaps of what are called uh, molecular markers uh, or mileposts along each one of the chromosomes that can generate a, a DNA fingerprint or a barcode on a selection. So Currently, for example, we use something called the Illumina 50K chip. So every uh, selection that we submit then has 50,000 different DNA polymorphisms uh, run on it. And at any given selection, probably, you know, maybe a half of those will actually be informative. But still, that's 25,000 data points that you've got on things. So some of those data points uh, are actually genes that we know and care about, and then others are linked to genes that we know and care about. And so it is a very um, useful and informative exercise to have that kind of information, uh, just to know the genetic architecture of each potential selection. Uh, We may often be able to uh, go in and and say, you know, a given individual has the form of a gene that we want and therefore we'll keep it based on the 50K or it has what we don't want and then you eliminate it. So that's called marker-assisted selection. We found over the years that uh, in addition to the actual selection piece, perhaps what's of the greatest value to us is really understanding the things that we have created. Uh, Let me give you an example. We're currently working on resistance to uh, a type of stem rust. So that's a fungus that can affect barley. And this particular fungus uh, strain is uh, called uh, UG99 or the Uganda 99 form. And the reason we're, we're working on this is because we don't have it in the U.S. yet. And it really can just clean the clock of, of a barley crop. Uh, if it's infected, the disease has moved out of Africa. It's now into the Middle East. And so it's only a matter of time before it arrives. So we're trying to develop resistant varieties and just have them out there. So when this fungus does arrive, it won't, uh, as I say, clean our clock. So there uh, is a, a gene, resistance gene identified Uh, that confers resistance to this particular strain, and we have a molecular marker for it. We crossed uh, various varieties with donors of that resistance gene, uh, put them through this DNA analysis profiling just to make sure that we really did have the resistance gene there. And lo and behold, we discover that the resistance gene that we knew about 
is effective about half the time. That in fact, you need other factors which were uh, kind of undiscovered or not really described that are needed in order to actually get that full level of expression of resistance. So if we had relied on the molecular marker for the single resistance gene alone, we would have been uh, correct in selecting resistance half the time. So we really need to engage in that uh, continual discovery process. And that's where molecular marker tools are so effective. I was out, I don't know what year it was, maybe uh, five or so years ago at the North Dakota State Barley Field School that Rich Horsley and Paul Schwartz put on. At the time I was there, they were actually building, I can't remember if it was a bio-level safety two or three lab mm-hmm. there, you know, to, to bring over that stem rust so they could use it there in that facility. Do you, do you have um, a facility like that at OSU or do you have to... When you go to test the line that you think has resistance, do you do you test it here in the U.S. or do you ship it over to where the disease is and, and put it up against it there? Well, we try to do uh, all of the above. So we work uh, extensively with Brian Stephenson at University of Minnesota, where they have one of these biocontainment facilities. And so he's a pathologist specialist uh, in these rusts. And so there's a whole uh, just phenomenal skill set that's required to effectively inoculate uh, and then assess the level of disease on seedlings in these biocontainment facilities because there's limited space in there is what they can actually be testing. And so uh, generally those those tests are, are conducted on plants that only have a couple of leaves. So in, in plant resistance breeding, then we, we want to be sure that the resistance is effective at the adult plant stage. And so the place you want to do that then is, is uh, uh, in the presence of, of uh, natural infection and at a stage that's going to matter. And the only way that we can do that is to get our material to Africa. And thankfully, the USDA uh, ARS conducts uh, a series of uh, experiments every year uh, throughout Africa in order to allow us to, to test things. Now, they can only accommodate a certain number of selections in those trials because every breeder is, is wanting to test material there. So we kind of go through the seedling uh, work through first with, with Brian, uh, understand what's happening there, and then send a very uh, limited subset of uh, potential resistant sources and then the appropriate susceptible and resistant checks to Africa for confirmation. up. Climate change is, is certainly making our life more challenging because, uh, say, formerly when we had a somewhat more stable set of climatic conditions, we kind of knew what diseases to expect. Now all bets are off. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. 
Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweetbread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Louis partners with the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild for an annual conference November 11th and 12th. I'm looking forward to the District Mid-Atlantic meeting the weekend of November 12th in Virginia Beach. Hope to see you there. District Eastern Canada meets in Quebec November 16th. Don't miss the Yeast Propagation Best Practices webinar November 16th. District Northern California hosts its fall meeting December 7th at Lagunitas Brewing Company in Petaluma. And the annual District Ontario Technical Conference will be January 26th through the 28th, just outside of Toronto. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. back to the show. As we've already alluded, one of the main objectives of barley breeding is to outrun the never-ending pursuit of disease. During your career, has it felt like breeding has lost or gained ground in that race against disease? Well, it's, you know, so the, that whole race is sometimes referred to as the, you know, what is it, Red Queen hypothesis out of uh, Alice in Wonderland. And it's just like the faster you run, the more you stay still. So it's just, a, it's a constant process and kind of hearkening back to that earlier discussion of how many, you know, potential next best varieties have we thrown out. It's really heartbreaking when you have a selection that you're really excited about and then some new strain, new form, new something comes up, uh, entirely new disease, and then just uh, takes it out. So you have to just uh, set it aside. Uh, we say that things like that, that they go into being good parents. And so, you know, it turns out that a favored selection turns out to be susceptible to something. We've seen uh, leaf rust, for example, emerge as a, uh, a major uh, problem for us. 
for years we never even worried about leaf rust. And then uh, it showed up and some uh, really nice uh, varieties and potential varieties we had were susceptible. And so you say, well, we can't continue those as varieties, but we can cross them to other things that do have resistance to leaf rust, for example, uh, and then uh, select for uh, resistant progeny. So climate change is, is certainly making our life more challenging because uh, say formerly when we had a somewhat more stable set of climatic conditions, we kind of knew what diseases to expect. Now all bets are off. It seems that every year uh, with the greater volatility that then we have new things showing up each year and then they won't show up for a couple of years. And then sometimes we just get lucky, right? You want to tell the story of the variety Kindred? Ooh, I don't know that one in detail. Okay, so. well, that's uh, one of the North Dakota varieties that I forget what disease came along and wiped out the entire crop. I think this was in the forties. Yeah, there was yeah. this. There was just this one barley plant left that had resistance, and they it was, it was a pretty interesting mm-hmm. story. Yeah, I would surmise that that was uh, probably RPG-1 and stem rust, uh, because the same stem rust, but different strains of it have been, uh, you know, afflict wheat and barley throughout the Midwest. And this uh, RPG-1 has uh, remained effective against the races of stem rust that we have since the 40s. So, hence, I'm thinking that Kindred might tie back to that stem rust story, but you'd want to confirm that. Yeah, okay. Well, hey, going back to the um, DNA fingerprinting, um, I'm curious if you wish you you could do more with that. Um, is there a cost roadblock there, or do you feel that that tool is being utilized, you know, as much as we could right now? Oh, there's certainly a cost roadblock uh, in the sense that the uh, we, we call that genotyping, that step of getting molecular markers. So we budget that into our grants, and so we are typically constrained by how much genotyping we can actually engage in based on how much grant funding we have. So we've been fortunate uh, in the barley community to have had a couple of these big federal grants called CAP grants that have allowed us to, to pretty much get as much genotyping as we need. There's a, a an outstanding sort of backstop or second uh, level of, uh, of you know, uh, access built into that, which uh, through what are called the regional genotyping labs. And so these are USDA facilities that are funded specifically to provide genotyping services to wheat and barley. So uh, until now, we've worked with North Dakota State University on this uh it's called Illumina genotyping, and so the one where we currently have the 50K. So they we pay for the reagents to run the 50K, but then they provide the expertise and they have all the equipment and so forth to do that. So it's kind of like at a you know at cost to get that genotyping service. We're currently working with our local genotyping lab at Washington State University with Devin C to develop what would basically be a free genotyping service on a more limited set of markers that has been carefully selected to be informative. And so that is something that we'd be able to routinely apply to our uh, breeding program. And I would imagine are all these different public breeding programs actively sharing this, uh, this, you know, genetic mapping with each other? I I would think that they would. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you take the uh, example of the, uh, the CAP projects, the, uh, all the data that uh, were generated through those projects went to something called the T3 database that's uh, organized and managed out of Cornell University. So all of that genotype data is available to anyone, public or private sector. 
And then, for example, with this Washington State University uh, platform that we're working on, uh, Jamie Sherman at uh, Montana State University and our group chose the initial markers to go on that. And we work with Devin and then Jamie's got a student who's going to identify more markers so that we have a more robust platform. So our community, thankfully, is, is very open and collaborative. That's great. We're about to produce an episode on the topic of brewer's yeast modified by CRISPR to produce hop flavor and aroma compounds. You may have seen this in the news recently. Uh, About a year ago, you didn't think that CRISPR would be used in public barley breeding programs. Does that still hold true or has anything changed? Well, I'd say that CRISPR will probably not be used in public breeding programs to develop finished varieties just because of the cost of the intellectual property that's likely to be associated with that. And uh, however, as a research tool, it could be absolutely outstanding. And if you come up with a particular uh, validated phenotype that you've accomplished through CRISPR, you could ask the question and say, hey, if I had this particular attribute in there, would that variety uh, be worth uh, 350 bucks a ton or 375 or 400 or whatever it's going to take to pay the royalties to cover those IP costs that uh, are related to the CRISPR technology? I've noticed many of the breeding programs here in the U.S. have devoted more resources to winter barley breeding over the last decade. Could you comment on that shift as well as how the priorities of your own program have shifted over the years? Yeah, so the uh, shift to winter barley, I think, is a reflection of um, uh, climate change and an acceptance that that this is real, that it's something that we need to be concerned about. And it's also a uh, reflection uh, of changing cropping system patterns, some of which, again, tie back to to climate change issues. But barley is a crop that... uh, you know, is always going to be uh, challenged in terms of price. Uh, we're currently seeing a situation where we have a relatively stable U.S. barley acreage. Most of that barley is destined for malting uses, and most of it is grown under contract. And so kind of hearkening back to the CRISPR question, whoever is contracting that barley is going to have to be willing to pay an additional premium to uh, whatever intellectual property is associated. So there's always this this push to drive down costs to get out of competitive relationships with corn or soybeans or other crops that uh, growers uh, might uh, be uh, have as alternatives to barley in their environment. So fall planted barley is in, in concept going to be able to uh, take better advantage of available precipitation. It's going to prevent uh, soil loss through erosion and potentially uh, ameliorate some of that uh, fertility uh, runoff and contamination uh, that we see when you do not have ground cover over the winter. So those are all some sort of, what would you say, ecosystem services of of a fall-planted barley. In general, we see a yield advantage of, say, around 20% in most cases if the the fall-planted crop survives the winter as compared to a spring crop at the same location. So that's kind of intuitively appealing because if you get the seed out there in the fall, that plant germinates, establishes a root system, and uh, can just take off and get going. So, for example, right here in the Willamette Valley now, our fall planted material is already has multiple leaves out, and some of it is starting to think about uh, transitioning to a reproductive stage, and we haven't even planted our spring crops yet because the soil is too wet for us to work the ground. 
there's another little twist on the the winter barley bit that I'd like to interject at this point, and it's something called facultative growth habit. And the facultative uh, growth habit is one where you have uh, cold tolerance or the potential to trigger maximum cold tolerance, but you do not require vernalization. And vernalization is uh, the situation where you need a certain number of cold units in order to trigger the vegetative to reproductive transition. So all this is of, that matters because a facultative variety could be planted in the fall or the spring. So you'd be able to, to have greater flexibility in terms of what uh, your planting and or market conditions were like in the fall might drive you for that planting. And if those conditions are not favorable, then you could use the same variety and put that out in the spring application. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, you don't hear people talk about facultative barley a lot. They usually talk about winter versus spring or summer barley. Are there facultative varieties that are that people just refer to as winter barleys instead, or are is facultative a newer phenomenon in terms of barley varieties? We just don't have many of them bred, or what's the story there? Yeah, there's not a lot of commercial facultative barley out there uh, at this point. Um, we had one a number of years ago, a uh, six-row called Maha, M-A-J-A, and uh, it was uh, a, a, you know an example of a, a true facultative that performed well under fall-seeded conditions, performed well under spring-seeded conditions. It had the uh, sort of two strikes against it. One, it was a six-row, and it came out just at that sort of moment when uh, the industry shifted to two-row. And then the other strike against it is it turned out to be uh, very susceptible to leaf rust, that disease that we mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that we really hadn't anticipated as being a problem. So two reasons why Maha is not grown. So we push uh, facultative growth habit in our breeding program. Uh, and of the selections that we currently are looking at for the AMBA pilot program, so that's the one that precedes the plant scale program, uh, we have three facultatives uh, in that uh, trial at this point. It does uh, mean that a breeding program has to kind of do really twice as much work, if you will, because you want to test your facultative under fall planted conditions, and then you want to test it under spring planted conditions. For you to breed a facultative barley, is that are you having to cross a winter with a spring, or is it not, or is that not how that works? Yeah. So at some point, you have to provide a uh, uh, use a parent in the crossing program that provides the non-vernalization allele. So the lack of vernalization requirement can be achieved uh, based on a naturally occurring deletion of three genes on chromosome 4H in barley. It's called the Vern 2 locus, and there's just a naturally occurring variant where those genes are just dead gone. They're not there. So once you get that into your breeding material, then you can uh, actively select for that deletion. If we look at the uh, lines that I mentioned earlier that are in the AMBA program, uh, we have, for example, full pint by Violetta. So full pints of spring crossed by Violetta. We selected for Violetta levels of cold tolerance with the full pint lack of vernalization sensitivity. Uh, if you don't select for the lack of vernalization sensitivity, you, of course, can recover a winter type. So we have a Maris Otter by full pint cross that's a winter. And so in that particular cross, rather than uh, getting the absence of vernalization from full pint, we picked up the requirement for vernalization from Maris Otter. 
is once you move forward, then we'd like to get to a situation in our program where everything we had was uh, facultative uh, rather than winter because it really facilitates a lot of other breeding steps. But it's going to take a while to get to that uh, to that point. And certainly we're not going to throw away winters in the process. That's interesting. I'm down here in Virginia and Violetta is kind of a, a hot new thing around here. So I'm, I'm getting ready to brew some beer with that for the first time. Cool. Okay. Uh, you've also been doing more and more breeding for naked or hullless barley. Why is that? Yeah. So the naked uh, work is just got a, a big boost here recently with a grant that we received from the USDA competitive grants program that's uh, directed at organic farming systems. And so we have a project there that's uh, called multi-use barley for organic systems. And one of those uses is for malting and brewing. The kind of the concept of the driver, there's, you know, nothing new. People have been eating naked barleys for the last 8,000 years. There's a lot of work in, in Canada in the late 80s, you know, all through the 90s on naked barleys for multiple uses. And so we're just kind of picking up that baton and trying to carry it on, on forward here. The idea is that if you didn't have the hull, then the same variety would be uh, potentially useful for malting and brewing, for food, or for feed. Let's take the example of a covered barley right now. If you, if your Violetta in Virginia hits fourteen percent protein, uh, you're not going to, your maltster's not going to want to deal with it. You're not going to want to brew with it. And so, what what options are left for the grower? Uh, feed and feed generally sells for a loss. So what we'd like to do is, is give the grower and the other uh, people in the value chain greater opportunity. So let's say you had a naked barley out there and uh, you comes in at 10 or 11 percent. Brilliant. That meets into your feeds into your malt channel. But you hit 13 or 14 percent. Fine goes right off to your food channel. Doesn't require purling or can go directly into the uh, animal feed channels as well. So I really, you know think at, at this point in time that, that we should be looking at naked barleys and uh, potentially after, you know, 8,000 years just saying, uh, you know, thank you, Hull, but uh, your time has come. <laughs> All right. Some folks like to say that malt is the new hops, meaning craft brewers are beginning to pay more attention to the influence that barley variety and the malting process has on their beers. I'm curious what you think about the rise of the craft maltster and where all this is headed. Well, it's certainly, you know, just a symphony to my ears to hear that barley could be the next hops. And so, uh, you know, barley is this essential base of beer. And uh, yet it's it's always been kind of a situation um, where, you know, just like barley, behave yourself, you know, just just be back there, you know, kind of going well, the rest of the band, you know, goes ahead and does their thing, either in terms of hop aroma and flavor or yeast aroma and flavor. And so that's been an area of research that we've uh, picked up in the last couple of years. And it started out with the flavor pack and then the Brewers Association has, has come on to uh, help us research that. So I, I do think that barley is going to uh, emerge as a contributor to beer flavor. Uh, certainly that's going to be uh, manifested in certain styles of beer more than in others, at least initially. And uh, that's going to be sort of on the paler uh, end of the spectrum. And the contributions are likely to be 
um, subtle uh, and the sorts of things that brewers are going to say, yeah, this matters to me. So I think it's going to be, you know, analogous to a situation that we see now with, say, Maris Otter or Golden Promise, <clears throat> where you have some iconic varieties that brewers still use because they can pick up a flavor or a contribution to mouthfeel or aroma, whatever it is, from those malts in their beers, and they're willing to pay that additional premium for them. So does their consumer also pick up that same note? It might be almost an unconscious preference on the part of the consumer initially until they educate themselves and and come forward. So we're at kind of an exciting juncture in that research right now. We uh, have uh, had two papers just uh, out in the Journal of the American Society of Brewing Chemists uh, based on Dustin Herb's PhD thesis work, where we showed that indeed the barley variety and the growing environment can contribute significantly to the flavor of beer. The caveat to that research is that those flavors were detected by a trained sensory panel in nano beer. So those were single bottles of beer brewed from a single micro malt. And we've carried that experiment to the next level. And uh, we're now, uh, you know, just we're, we're sort of on the edge of finding out, do these flavor differences carry on to uh, the pilot level? And so in collaboration with Deschutes Brewery here in Oregon, uh, with Veronica Vega, who's their research brewer, and then Amanda Benson, who's their uh, sensory specialist, uh, Veronica brewed two barrels uh, each of uh, five varieties that were malted by Scott Fisk here in our Barley World Malt House. And those beers are finished and they've been sent out to uh, trained sensory panels. Uh, Deschutes has a panel, Firestone Walker has a panel, New Glarus, uh, Rar Malting, and then at OSU. And so those five beers, two reps each, uh, we've got three Oregon Promise selections, and so those are the potential novel contributors to flavor compared to Full Pint and compared to Copeland. And so the jury is out, and the verdict should be delivered, um, you know, by end of this month. If you'd like to learn more about barley breeding, I encourage you to make your way on over to mbaa.com and type haze into the search bar. That'll get you to a webinar called Breeding Better Barley that Pat put on about a year ago. It's totally free for Master Brewers members who can watch Pat's webinar on demand along with all the other Master Brewers webinars since 2014. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Can't stop, can't stop.